Welcome to episode three of the In the Name of Service podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Barb Thompson. Here, we broadcast stories of men and women who've answered the call to serve in hopes of inspiring and catalyzing the rest of us to follow suit in our own way. Today's interview is with Josh Armstrong. He is a current seminary student, husband, and father of three. Josh and I met during his service as a Special Tactics Officer, or STO, in the Air Force. He's one of the most thoughtful, selfless, and hardworking individuals I know, and I'm so excited for you to hear from him. A few things struck me about this conversation that I wanted to share up front so you can catch them during our conversation. The first is the detail in which Josh recalls his development during his formative and college years. If you are a young person currently searching for answers, you'll want to listen to this. And if you in any way are in a position to shape young people, pay attention. You may very well be one of the most influential and positive voices in that person's life, catapulting them into a life of purpose and impact. The second is the specificity of the resources Josh has utilized along the way. Check the show notes after you listen, because I've included a list of Josh's most influential books from earlier in life, as well as his current reading list, his favorite podcasts, and a few important links. The first is for more information on Air Force Special Tactics. And the second is the Working Genius Assessment, where you can learn more about which tasks at work give you joy and energy and which ones drain you. Lastly, if you're interested in hearing more from Josh, consider connecting with him on LinkedIn. If you enjoy this conversation, you'll appreciate his posts full of thoughtful insights he's currently learning. Thank you for being here today. I hope this encourages you to attack the work before you today. All right, Josh, thank you so much for being with us today. Start us off by just telling us a little bit about yourself. Thanks, Barb. Um, happy to be here. And I was, my, my name is Josh Armstrong, of course. I was um, raised in a military family. Uh, my dad and mom were both in the army. So I moved all over the place as a kid. And we eventually uh, ended in Florida uh, for my high school and college. So went to a public university there in Florida and joined the military thereafter, went to kind of assessment and, and selection during my senior year of college, joined the Air Force. And while I was in the Air Force, met my now wife. We have three children together. And just last year, after 11 years of service, I recently separated. And now I'm a student here at a seminary, I'm kind of discerning my next step to you know future service in, in the church and, in, and a couple of other things. That's kind of a, a once over the world. Yeah, that's yeah. you in a nutshell. Yeah. So what, I mean, you mentioned both of your parents being mm -hmm. in the army. What do you feel like, you know, personally, internally led you to serve? And how did you make the choice of, you know, how to do that? I've been thinking about this uh, ahead of our conversation. And I think that uh, decision to serve is part of a period of my life where the, the shorthand answer is I was just, maturing. I was a, kind of a, a boy and I was introspective and I realized that in high school. And so going into college, I realized I, I didn't really know kind of what I believed, why I believed it, what I wanted to do, or what was the appropriate way to see the world, I guess, and, and operate in it. And mm. college was extremely formative to me, but really senior year of high school is when I, I think I 
I really started like thinking about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, high school is a tough time for everybody. So I, uh, will speed past, you know, I just the embarrassing details of trying to figure out who you are, <laughs> but, but I did have a sense like I need to, I need to grow up yeah. and, you know, I, and maybe I, I wasn't a church growing up too with my mom and dad and probably I, no doubt the the preaching at that church nourished some of that introspection and like an awareness of, you know, Hey, that I was not right. And probably some of the, the ways I, I, I related to things and people in the world. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, so that drew me into trying to figure that out. And that began, that started in the end of high school, went to, to college. I was kind of also, there's a lot of platitudes in my church growing up. So I wasn't satisfied with some of the answers. And yeah. Uh, during that time, I stumbled upon my grandfather's. He had some Bible commentaries that my dad had kept um, because my dad's dad was a Methodist pastor. And uh, after Pearl Harbor, he enlisted in the Marine Corps and actually went to Iwo Jima, fought there, was a cartographer and mapping out the tunnels. And oh, wow. um, and so I, I'd never been exposed to like a Bible commentary, which was I just remember reading this in high school. And, and there's kind of depth and connectedness between the Bible as a library and discussion of like, even like odd stories. I just remember the weirdest things, how like rabbis in the first century would use caffeine to, to stay up and, and read the scriptures Sounds throughout good. the night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So just just weird things like that. Um, and it just, I was curious and I, and I was hungry. Mm-hmm. And so I would uh, dig into that. And I went into college and college was like a, a fresh start. So I didn't know what I wanted to do when I entered college, but I landed on uh, political science as a major. I, I suppose, hey, man, I, I needed to learn some things about the world was maybe that uh, what fueled that. Mm-hmm. And then during that time, I was still reading uh, these these little Bible commentaries from my, from my grandfather. And a couple of other variables came together where I had a classmate who was using the GI Bill. It served in Iraq. And then... Uh, a buddy who was doing this thing called Ranger Challenge, building rope bridges, going across a river. And then I, after visiting all the different kind of Christian groups on campus, I, I landed at a particular Lutheran church where a pastor was kind of giving me individual books that he thought would be good for me at this time in my life. And all of that came together, and I knew I wanted to serve in the military. I felt that responsibility. I, I yeah. guess at the same time, I was following the war in Afghanistan. So OEF, one of my assignments, I'd follow the New York Times coverage every day. And so I just, that was, and and that was a project. And at that point I was like, okay, maybe, maybe law school, maybe something with intelligence. I hadn't thought of the idea of the military, but this vet in my class, uh, talking to a friend who's doing Ranger Challenge and then probably my dad and my grandfather's service too. It just hit me that someone is doing that on my behalf. And I was overwhelmed with gratitude because college is a great time for me. I was able to learn all sorts of stuff, meet new people, and again, figure out what I believed too. And and I was in this this church with a pastor who took all my questions very seriously. It was very approachable. And so I, I had kind of two simultaneous desires. I, I felt a, a conviction to serve in the military. Mm-hmm. And I thought the theology and, and what I'd learned in the church almost reinforced that because you know, I anticipated some some very hard times in the in the military, and I had a, a couple heroes that I was reading at that time too. Probably first and foremost was a, a guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, mm-hmm. um, who just in a nutshell he was a German pastor during the Nazis' rise to power, and was one of the few Germans who 
resisted the Nazi infiltration of the church, had a radio program speaking out against Hitler, and he had the opportunity to go to Britain and then America and to, to kind of just get away from all of that mess. But he, he made the responsible decision in his mind to get back to Germany because if he was going to be part of that reconstruction process, he had to potentially suffer with his with his peers and countrymen. And so mm-hmm. um, I remember reading this and I was like, man, this is this is all because of how he views the world and, and his relationship with God, the creator, and then his peer creatures. And right. he wasn't interested in his personal piety. He, he just, he, he knew that his relationship with God was based totally on grace. And so he could look to his left and right and say, well, what do my neighbors need? And that was getting Jews out of the country. And eventually, I think why he's controversial is because he takes part in a, you know, sort of a, he's called like martyr, spy, and pastor. But he takes, he joins the Abwar German intelligence branch and, and is part of the conspiracy to, to get Hitler out of power. So I just, I'm reading this guy and I read his works. So I see his life and then right. I read his, his ethics, the cost of discipleship. And I'm, I just like set back on my heels. I'm like, wow, this stuff, this stuff is important. And, and later in life, I read Ordinary Men. So I set kind of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life in contrast with Ordinary Men, which is the story about the reservist battalion 101 who was part of the final solution in Poland. And mm. This was truck drivers, teachers. It wasn't like the Gestapo going through killing these Jewish men, women, children. It was ordinary people. And it's, yeah. it's, it gives firsthand accounts of why they did what they did. And, and I love Browning. He has this note. He says, the sleepers in Germany weren't like those people who are temperamentally wired to follow an authoritarian you know, strongman. The, the true sleepers were those few people who had the moral courage to right. not partake and and because these these uh stories have examples of the the officers saying hey no one has to do this they don't want to but out of shame and and kind of honor amongst their peers or whatever the motivation was they very few actually turn away and so Bonhoeffer just he stands out all the more strongly for me Mm -hmm. and um and so I'm, I'm reading him I'm reading some Martin Luther who again he kind of turned Turn, was a turning point in, in history of Western civilization, the church, and also just all of Western thought. And I, I feel that res- responsibility to, to serve. But then one day, because these guys were not speaking in platitudes, guys like Bonhoeffer, Luther, and of course I was reading my Bible more closely too, it was, it was an account of everything, the entire world. Right. And, and as a young man, I think I was just hungry for that. Yeah. And, it, it helped me make, it was comprehensive. It helped me make sense of a way and, and seeing myself too, like, oh, wow, this is, maybe I shouldn't justify this kind of emotion or this sentiment and maybe I should pump the brakes on how this feels. And so that led to, okay, I want to serve. And then at some point after military service, I want to go to seminary where I'm at now and, and serve the church in some capacity. And you can, every commander I've had who's asked me a long-term goal, so I've been forthright yeah. with them about this and gotten the really strange looks, but also really <laughs> good conversations. Um, you can ask, yeah, with DA, B-Dub, uh, PVCH, any of those guys have, we've had, it's been a fun talk. <laughs> I bet. Um, and, well, and I Josh, guess. Let me ask you yeah, this. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. You felt the conviction to serve in the military and you knew kind of all along that you were being led to this path to serve first there and then in another place in the church but you chose like a very difficult line of work (laughs) you didn't just join the military can you let people know um just like what a stow is and 
Oh, yes. Okay. Um, so you're a special tactics officer. So I, that's a, the Air Force's ground component of special operations. They kind of have three big mission sets, you know, one's termed global access. So think about assessing a strip of land, a roadway, a dry lake bed, or a, a cratered runway to say, hey, can we land aircraft here, helicopters, anything related to integrating the ground picture with the air. Another thing and where they probably gained the most recognition in the special operations community is what we what we'd been precision strike or just ensuring the accuracy of air ordnance onto onto the enemy in close proximity to friendly forces and uh, that's just a joint terminal attack controller and then the final thing under the umbrella of special tactics is personal recovery and that's combat search and rescue and humanitarian um, disaster relief sort of operations as well so uh, before getting to do those mission sets, you go through a two and a half year training pipeline. You you have to be assessed and selected first where you have interviews with people like how I knew her, Doc Thompson and, <laughs> and a few others. And then uh, once you do that, you you start your your initial training course. You go through Army static. For me, it was Army static line parachute course. And then I went to Navy military freefall course, Marine combat diver course. Air Force Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape course, Air Traffic Control School with the Air Force, um, and then a culminating school, Combat Control School, where you really hone your craft as an Air Force Special Operator. And then after that, you do another advanced skills training that combines all of those skills into full mission profiles, and you just get repetition after repetition practicing. So when you get to a team, you are deployable and oper just operational. So... I had a desire to do that. I suppose I'd always liked the outdoors and was, was very physical. And it seemed if I was going to do join, this would be these were this, these positions were in high high demand. And also, yeah. I just thought, hey, I, I have the capability. I I think I I should uh, I should head this way. And and I had a number of friends too, and kind of who were doing the army route, and mm -hmm. and then also going to buds to to hope to be a Navy SEAL. And I've I actually worked with some of those folks downrange. So that was pretty cool, but. I landed on special tactics because my dad being in the army, um, when I told him I was interested in, Hey, going the army route, he introduced me to some special tactics officers at McDill. Um, Neat. and so that interview kind of set me in that direction. Just your explanation of what you had to do to um, even, you know, be selected to become a stone, not to mention the work once you're there, you know, once you arrive uh, as the leader of a team, what have the sacrifices looked like in your own uh, life, your family's life, and just to make that type of service happen. Should probably change a little bit to each assignment. Um, obviously, it is a very first thing that comes to mind. It's, it's you grow, but it's also a sacrifice uh, physically. Just the demands of things you normally would not have to do, like you know, jumping out of airplanes and moving with moving with a load. And so, I think that's the most obvious kind of sacrifice when I think of most of the, the folks that we've worked with and. The chief of my last position, uh, like how much he's done and how his, you know, our bodies aren't invincible and um, that you can kind of, it takes a toll eventually. So I think of that. Mm -hmm. And uh, for, for me, immediately, I realized, oh, it was, you know, a back problem that I'd get, a, I'd get, you know, needled by a physical therapist and be up and running the next day. Now it's like, it'll take a couple weeks of waking up in the night. Um, but that's, yeah. that's still, I think there's more growth than cost there mm -hmm. i i think for, 
like this this program in, I'm in right now, I'm a very curious person, and so a lot of questions I had I had to sort of put off. It felt like mm, this feels yeah. like delayed delayed gratification. Yeah, you know, because I was there to serve the unit and the commander and the team. And when I first showed up to a team, the operation schedule was deploy for six months, eight months of training to get everyone combat mission ready, deploy for six months, come back for eight months, and you're and especially and I hopped into that cycle midstream my my senior ncos were that was normal life for years and so trying to manage that to keep everyone mission focused but also do do what we could to mitigate the impact of that to their families that right. was that's a challenge for any leader but especially a young lieutenant hopping into a team who's still you know honestly trying to learn the job with with those folks i think lost control of your time yes um and then you're taking direction Ideally, right to to your commander. Your 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 commander is driving the unit, and it's. I think it's an opportunity. You get a lot of mentorship in that a sacrifice, but it is it is like the priority in your in your life as far as hey, if I'm looking at the amount of time you spend to a task, prepping for a task, it yeah, it consumes everything. What has been um, just you know from your own personal perspective the most meaningful uh, period of time during your service so far or most meaningful position or even mission the most meaningful service was just being able to lead and listen to learn from and and guide and make the make the best of the resources and personnel I had on a team and that was in my first assignment my second even our team like just being able to help you know because there is a lot of loss of control like we talked about and there is there's a high demand mm -hmm. um and i think it's it's easy to get distracted or lost in the in the small task and and not kind of see the the the, the tax on the team so i think i like big picture i like you know, to kind of what well, to, to care for a team across a number of environments now as far as operationally the most satisfying my first deployment i got to use a lot of my my intellectual curiosity and looking at the the entire country and, and generating a plan to uh, mitigate for a loss of you know what we call air infrastructure so i'm looking at with with the team we were with we were looking at air infrastructure in a particular country the enemy network and the friendly campaign plan we generated our own concept of operation and had that approved at a general officer level so oh, that was wow. that was very satisfying just uh, under the mentorship of uh, my first commander who Again, like he expected a lot out of his people, but you learn quite a bit. And so we we spent months kind of in analysis, and we also responded to a number of short notice things, a humanitarian mission in uh, northeast Afghanistan, and then a, a expeditionary operation. We were working in airfield to support uh, direct action operations in a blizzard, and we partnered up with the special forces team to secure and establish the airfield, and that was just... That was satisfying because we were doing our job. Yeah. Um, and then behind that, there was a steady state analysis with the team and then doing things we were doctrinally created to do to, to close gaps in our infrastructure now to enable the, the combatant commander to, to reach his objectives in the country. And then my next deployment to Iraq was, was really cool. I got to, that was kind of, that first deployment I was focused on airfield global access like operations. The next one, I was a, a joint terminal attack controller attached to a number of different SEAL platoons. And every SEAL platoon 
had a, a different personality and I'd do all things related to air-to-ground integration. But on one instance in, in that deployment, again, there is a need in theater for a combat controller. All of our senior combat controllers had pushed to another country because of the, the problem there. So I ended up being the senior controller in country and I had 12 hours notice to integrate with this Marine air-to-ground task force, a SEAL platoon, wow. some Aussies, and we established a, a, a first airhead in a new location in response to ground gained by ISIS and to help establish a, a coalition footprint and prepare for a counterattack. And it was, you were, you know, combat controllers are men forced for this mission. So you, right. you had to have mobility, a mobility plan to assess the airfield, establish the airfield and deconflict fires with mobility aircraft. And we also had Iraqi helicopters and artillery and all of that needed to be deconflicted. And we couldn't get anything on the ground. So all of your water, your, your gun trucks, your barriers, the, the base that was being built up was coming in exclusively from that that runway um, from either fixing or rotoring. And so super busy, but very satisfying to, to, to work that problem set with uh, one other combat controller and to enable that 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 eventual the counterattack on a on a particular city. And um, I just after coming off it, I was like, this is this is why our job you know, exist. Yes. Um, everything came to bear and, you know, working, working throughout the whole night. And of course, crisis to respond to. And I, lo- I loved working with the young Marines along with the SEALs. You saw the kind of the best of the joint world. And um, yeah, that was, that was, that was really gratifying. I love the Pacific too. I, I, my second deployment, I was all over the Pacific and 10, 10 countries doing small unit training engagements kind of on for a month back for a month on Okinawa. I was based out of there, gone for a month to work with all sorts of different partner forces uh, with the team of PJs and combat controllers. And I, and I really appreciated being able to go forward with them. So rather than kind of integrating with an Army Special Forces team or Navy SEAL team, mm-hmm. we were doing everything together. And then, yeah, love that. And I really loved our, our team, our, our recruitment assessment selection development team because of working with folks like you and the technical specialist who just had deep knowledge in their their specialty that I could kind of just get a taste of um, as a stowe and the the kind of passion and, and curiosity and problem solving that everyone brought to that team. So I, I, I've been fortunate to wear a lot of different hats and yeah, um, I don't know. Really diverse all come together. experiences. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. 11 years is a long time, Josh. So and you just you spoke earlier about kind of this curiosity in waiting, you know, as you did all these amazing things. And uh, of course, it sounds like they were extremely satisfying at the time. But how did you make the decision to leave, you know, uh, one form of service and, and enter into another? I knew at some point I wanted to do this. So for for me, service reinforced the desire. I just didn't know when. Yeah. Um, and so the same the problems the same problems kept presenting themselves to me. So mm. I saw a need to serve overseas and kind of just felt a duty to do that. But yeah. I think that the church is, you know, I was motivated by positive pastors who I've seen and pastors who I've seen maybe who haven't embraced uh, their role. And with our domestic kind of Terminal. chaos and mm-hmm. uncertainty and anxiety and shallowness of thought and I agree with some some critics who say there's just like an ideology of demoralization out there. We talked about this a little before our uh, recording, and 
I think that is the case. And I think the church has such a high role. Like it, I, my whole perspective on life my, changed after being integrated into that church in college with a pastor who mm-hmm. um, gave me a particular reading material. And so I thought about separating in Okinawa, but then I was told about a, the unique position to work with, with your team and then a, a schoolhouse. So I stayed in for another tour. And as I look at it, the, the landscape domestically, that, that problem, it seems bigger to me and it, it, yeah. something that I'd like to be part of addressing. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes and, a lot uh, of sense. I'm trying to s- stay away from the philosophical um, depth of, of what I mean by that problem. But I think, I think people can relate and see yeah. that we, there's definitely uncertainty and turmoil. Yes. Um, and we don't know. We don't know what it means to be human anymore, and we're, we're. I think the there's mystery in some realms of life, but there's also a quest for intellectual certainty, and and I think Jordan Peterson does this well. So he's not a not a Christian. Phil, from an outsider's perspective, he's he's talked about how science asks what a thing is. Right. We can learn a thing's material properties. We get these awesome tools. This is great, but it does not answer the question how to how to act. Mm-hmm. That is that is outside of the scope of scientific investigation, and that's in his words, that's religion, narrative, philosophy, etc. And and so so we all have to look at out the world, assess what is the case, what should be, and then determine how to act. And that's that's often just a it's a subjective value assessment or a claim. And so it, there's distilled wisdom passed from generation to generation in the family to help you navigate that space. There's there's songs that help people. There's proverbs. There's mantras. I think the most sophisticated and, and integrated response to that is is religion, and he talks about that. And it it's because we always see our actions in narrative, and we see other people's actions in narrative. If someone's acting off one day. I, I immediately wonder, oh, maybe so and so had a rough night. Like I, I have to make sense <laughs> of it. And right. so so how religion makes explicit what we're all doing, and it. And but it also keeps you from too quickly making a, a judgment because it, it always orients you towards, I think your own sin. I'm speak, speaking specifically about Christianity. Right. Um, but I, so when I talk about the problem, that's kind of the, the idea I have. I, I don't think it's exclusive to the church. I think we are all acting out a metaphorical map that tells us this thing is a threat. This is going to be the best opportunity. This will give me rest. Or this is useless, or you know, we can go even further. This person is important. This person is not, and we're 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 navigating that space through something, and and I think the church has the the opportunity ever since you know Jesus Christ walked this earth, he deputized others to speak, teach, and baptize on his behalf, and that the Bible is a library of what that what that looks like, and so that's you know when I say the problem that right. keeps presenting itself to me. All of that more is what I mean. <laughs> yes, yes, <Yeah. laughs> and more. I get it. I get it. Well, and it yeah. uh, just sitting here listening to you talk about the experiences you had in in the military and and you know the problem that you see now and how you might combat that problem in your own life and the lives of the people around you. I mean, it takes no less courage to do what you're doing now. Honestly, mm-hmm. Josh, it's it sounds like a tough problem to solve for sure. So let me ask you this. You, you spoke about your parents and, um, you know, having the opportunity to be involved in a church that meant a lot to you, 
specific mm-hmm. mentors that helped you along the way and good experience in college. And then, of course, uh, you know, during your military service, you were around uh, a lot of people who were extremely driven. Mm-hmm. Let's say, you know, there's a an average individual or they feel like an average individual out there, uh, but they they feel a, a similar sense to uh, of conviction uh, that you mentioned before. How, what is your advice for that person, that young man or woman, if they feel the conviction to serve, but they, they really don't know how to start or, or where to start? Yeah, I think the, the first metaphor that, that comes to mind and, and the Bible uses all over the place, but many other religions do, depicts life as a journey. And so, yeah, I think that conviction is is good and noble. And uh, and, and the, in the Christian story, you know, that we have two fundamental relationships. There's one with, with our creator, God, but then also with, with fellow creatures. And so that desire to serve other people is good and noble. And I think that should be pursued. And, and if life really is a journey, then taking steps in that, even if it's a single step in that direction mm-hmm. is, is the first thing. And often that's talking with someone okay. who's, who's in that trade. Um, and that's, you know, I, talking with a pastor in, in college and then also the veteran in my class that was it's kind of helped me get traction in that particular direction and and I also think tapping into some some ancient wisdom I for, for me when I was discerning all this you know we're all making sense of the world and so these mentors along with well Luther had this saying he said hey we're all theologians and and one thing in a theologian is just somebody who talks about God to God or, or for God and they, they are made by um, prayer, uh, prayer specifically, hey, for, for the, the Holy Spirit and discernment in your life. They're made by meditation on, on God's word and that we would understand this according to his, his will. And then he says this last thing is, it's, it's all Latin, so uh, oratio, meditatio, tentatio. That tentatio is temptation, suffering, struggle. And, and when I think of mm. that, I think that's, that's really an adventure, again, of, of reading this account Comparing it to the, what the appearances and the, the struggle of taking those convictions before uh, our creator. And for me personally, the more responsibility I took on starting in college and even now, the more aware I was also of my inadequacies. Yes. And so why, well, I'm giving you this background because when I'm thinking about this from a theological perspective, it's like, wow, like who am I to start this out or or I, you know, this motive isn't pure. Like there's probably something in it for me as well. And so this prayer, meditation and, and suffering or adventure from a Christian perspective, you know, Jesus came to this earth to show us how to be right with the father, like how, how to honor God. And that is purely, we receive the gifts and the righteousness he gives us. And now knowing that is rock solid, I can look into that relationship of service and vocation with other people, not for righteousness, not to instrumentalize them to make me feel good about myself, but I, you can just right. sort of look at and say, well, what needs to be done? Mm-hmm. And I might actually be messy in this process, but, <laughs> but my ver you know, this is who like Jesus Christ says you are mine. And I don't need to worry about, uh, that, that vertical relationship with, with, because of what Jesus Christ came and did. And so I would say it, it probably, like we, you probably are a little inadequate, just like I was and I am right now. And you're going to learn and grow and, and stepping off in that direction. You know, the proverbial chaff will likely be burnt off. And so if life really is a journey, it behooves us to, to see who are, who are our counselors 
And I guess I'll, I'll, end, I'll finish maybe with a, my favorite Bonhoeffer quote, um, because, you know, he was thinking about how to take responsible action as well. Yes. And uh, coming back to Germany. And, and so here's his quote from Ethics, uh, really powerful for me. He says, just as God's love entered the world, thereby submitting to the misunderstanding and ambiguity that characterizes everything worldly, so also Christian love does not exist anywhere but in the worldly, in an infinite variety of concrete worldly action and subject to misunderstanding and condemnation. Every attempt to portray a Christianity of pure love, purged of worldly impurities, is a false puricism and perfectionism that scorns God's becoming human and falls prey to the fate of ideologies. God was not too pure to enter the world. And so I'd, I'd want to send you forward confidently with courage because our, our fellow creatures need your good works, holding on to the promises of God, and invite you to continually consider who your counselors are moving forward in your journey. Awesome. Maybe that's, I'll stop there. Yeah. I love that. Yes, yeah. that's so good. Okay. And I, I said I was, I had one kind of curveball question as I thought before okay. the end about our conversation today. And it's not like, um, you have a strong conviction and, and you've moved forward and sacrificed so much. I mean, physically, mentally, your time, you know, your effort, but you're doing this along with a family. And can you just speak to that mm-hmm. person serving out there that practically like they feel this very strong conviction that really rules their mind probably most of their waking hours? Um, but they also, you know, have the responsibility of of moving and living alongside, you know, a, a spouse or, or children. Yes, we we have as uh, a helpful distinction that we often talk about here here at seminary. It's kind of like the, the the three three estates or just three vocations. And so I'm constantly oriented to the fact that I'm I'm a father. You know, I have a family. I have my work, which right now I'm, I'm, I'm a student. Um, and then again, my, my relationship to the church, which orients me to, to the creator. And so we're always wearing these three hats and you have to prioritize well, what is the most important for me as a, as a, as a father, just as a parent. I have a four year old, uh, almost three year old and an almost one year old. And so no, again, articulating what is the most important thing that I could do with those kids and, and trying to step make steps in that direction is really important for us. So we we try to practice, you know, reading our Bible and saying prayers in the morning or evening. I can't always, I don't always make that, but Megan or my wife will keep up that practice if I'm not there and then we'll, we'll take turns. And she's been on board with all of these different things that I've done. Yeah. So that also, that Pretty can't, can't overlook that. <laughs> yeah. So just very practically, I've, I have not made any executive decisions in, in any of these <laughs> Um, decisions. We've, we've prayed about it. We've talked about it. And she's so gracious and her working geniuses too. To, oh, we, sorry, we talked about that before the podcast. Her strengths are different than mine. And so, and, and mine are different. So we, as a family, it's just been a, a blessing to see her adapt to, to different aspects of the seasons of life. And, you know, our kids are becoming school age. So we're, we're looking at, you know, different schooling options. Um, but how to, how to do this with a family. I think I've been thinking about this career transition and Megan and I talked about this all the way back to our days dating. So that was very helpful. Um, so if you have someone make your talk about it and, and let them know you're discerning it before you're maybe galvanizing them and saying, let's do it. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, that was, that's probably the most important. And then I think processing that, that decision together and, 
uh, praying about it is helpful. And, and because Megan is, is, has been in uh, in support of this decision, I, I know it's enabled me to do those things in the military and then make this transition. And I'm, yeah, I, I would not be able to do it without, a, without her being who she is. Right. So. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. I know that's a, a curveball, but essentially what I'm hearing is you're you're just as deliberate about, um, you know, the people on the journey with you as you are the journey itself. So, or, or even yeah. more so maybe. Anyway, thanks for your time today, Josh. Any parting thoughts before we conclude? No, it's really good talking with you and thanks for the opportunity. I hope you and yours are doing really well. All so, right. Thank you. Thank you.